morning and welcome to Grace Bible Church on this Palm Sunday. I pray that you are encouraged in the Lord. I'm always thankful for the worship here at Grace Bible Church. Many times, as I'm sure you would attest as well, I come to Sunday morning with baggage from the week. I can always feel the, the weight lifted as we worship our Lord together, as we sing songs together, as we sing the truths of Scripture. Even secular psychologists recognize the benefit of singing together as a group. As you know, we often associate songs that we hear on the radio with events in our lives. You hear the song and you remember those events. It is astounding to me that, that God has designed us to remember the words that we sing. I'm thankful and amazed that the Bible has its own hymn book in the Psalms. The people of God have always sung the truths of God together. We should sing songs that focus on our Creator and His goodness to us. I, I'm, I appreciate the scripture reading that we had prior to the worship in Isaiah 45 because it really points to the fact that we should be, should be praising and focusing our worship and praise on the Creator and His goodness to us. And we should also, those songs that we sing, we should sing them often. We should sing the truths of the gospel every day, really, in our homes. We should be listening uh, to the truths of the gospel through song. I'm amazed at how many songs our, our family, my own family, has learned over the many years of attending faithful churches. These songs represent an incredibly rich storehouse of gospel truth for us to lean on through the years. We were able to recall the rich truths of our Lord and Savior through the words that are imprinted, that we have sung in our, and through song that, that are imprinted on our hearts now. These words of scriptural truths have been set to music and sung aloud through the years. These words, these truths have a, a special way of it reinforcing the doctrines we are singing. Churches, we approach what may be difficult days. We must continue to sing doctrinal truth. We must sing in our churches and in our homes. We should sing when God's people gather. We should sing. We should sing together. We should sing to remember our Creator. We should sing to remember His goodness and His mercy toward the undeserving. Now, we have been studying through this little book of Jonah in the Old Testament. Jonah 2 records Jonah's prayer from the belly of the fish after almost perishing at the bottom of the sea. We should be amazed that many of his words in Jonah 2, many of the words of this actually disobedient prophet are found in the Psalms. In other words, as he was very near death, Jonah recalled the truths that he had been taught through songs sung among the people of Israel. You see, Jonah understood the truths. Jonah 2 shows that. He, he comprehended them well. Jonah knew that God is compassionate. He knew that God is gracious and God is slow to anger and God is abounding in loving kindness and truth. He also knew that God would not leave the guilty unpunished. In other words, Jonah knew that God was just. He knew, that, he knew these things because he had sung those truths his entire life. As we will see today, Jonah knew these truths, but that knowledge, the knowledge was not his problem. His problem was that God would show compassion and grace toward the Gentiles. It's that stark. His hang-up was that God would pardon rot rotten sinners like the Ninevites. You see, Jonah 4 is where we're going to be today. Jonah 4 is where the story of Jonah finds its climax and where it gets really good. Yet unless you know the storyline story of redemptive history, you're left to think, as you end Jonah 4, you're left to think, that's it? That's it? I hope to, to show you today that that's not it. There is so much, much more. I promise you the connection means everything to you and I. The connection, uh, the connection to the church, means, uh, the connection here means everything to you and I. To you and me, that is, correct, correct English. I, I've been told I have trouble with my pronouns. So everybody's got to have a weakness, right? I'm just kidding. I have many. But if not for this connection, many of you, if not all of you, would not be here today. That's, that's how important this is. Because that, this is where the story goes. 
is to the church and what God is doing in the world through the church. So let me pray and let's get started. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning again. We praise you. Lord, that we can gather around your word. Father, may your word have its, do its good work in the hearts of the listener. Lord, I pray for the Holy Spirit to move amongst us. Lord, that these truths would be illuminated. Father, that there would be many aha moments as the Holy Spirit uses the word of God to minister to each of us. Father, I pray that you would be in the heart of the, the preacher this morning, that he would preach with clarity, and that he would decrease as you increase. In Christ's name, amen. Well, over the past few weeks, we've been working through this book of Jonah as a play acted out before our eyes. We've made it through what we've called the prologue, the opening act, and also we've made it through Act 1, Act 2, and Act 3. Today, we are going to look at Act 4. Now, before that, I want to retell this story by asking you right now, I'm, I'm impressing upon you to put yourself in Jonah's shoes for just a few moments. I want to tell the story of Jonah or retell the story of Jonah from Jonah's point of view, with you as Jonah. As we do this, I want you to remember that Jonah embodies the Hebrew culture with all its attitudes and presuppositions. He perfectly represents the thoughts and attitudes of the nation Israel. So with that, let's retell the old story. In the opening, the opening act, you have grown up as an Israelite. You know that you are part of God's people, Israel. You claim Israel, or Abraham, that is, as your father. You've heard stories of Abraham's faithfulness. You have been taught how God led your forefathers out of captivity into, out of, out of captivity in Egypt, into the promised land. You rightly assert the greatness and humility of Moses. Throughout your life, you have sung many psalms that highlight how God has delivered Israel from the hands of the pagan Gentiles time and time again. You recognize that you are part of God's covenant people. Your nation has been given a special place among the nations at nations as God's chosen. You are part of something special. You realize that. You sing about it all the time. The elders remind you of it all the time. Uh, you observe the truths of these truths every week during Sabbath. Even as a nation, even as the nation has clearly declined in its worship of Yahweh, you, as Jonah, you cling to the promise of blessings found in the Psalms. Clearly, you've read Exodus 34 many times. As God's prophet, you know the truth about God's character. You know that He is compassionate. The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, for who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. These truths haunt you. They haunt you. As you see the wickedness of your people as they persist in idol worship, just like the nations. You try to excuse their sinfulness, but you know that blessing requires repentance and confession. You fully recognize the rest of Exodus 34, 6, and 7, that God will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. You've heard Obadiah's prophecy in Obadiah 15, for the day of the Lord draws near on all nations, on all the nations. You, are, you recognize that judgment is coming upon the nations. You're glad that God will smite the Gentiles and who, who have persecuted your people for hundreds of years. You're thankful for that. But you've also heard Joel's prophecy in Joel chapter 2 and realize that Israel will endure God's judgment during the day of the Lord as well. You know that, that Israel will be scattered among the nations. In your own day, you know judgment is coming. You realize the clock is ticking before God will use the nations to judge Israel, to judge your nation, the nation that you love so much, this covenant nation. You know that God will use the nations to judge Israel for its sin and idolatry. You know that he may very well use Assyria as his rod, the rod of his anger. You see, the clock is ticking. Tick, tock, tick, tock, tick. This brings us to, to Act 1 and Jonah 1. <clears throat> one day, almost 
inexplicably. The word of the Lord comes to you. Surely he will bless us. Yet he tells you, it's it's crazy, as crazy as as it sounds, he tells us, he tells you to go to your mortal enemies, the Assyrians. When he comes, you you know all the truths about God. Deep down, you recognize the truths of Exodus 34, 6, and 7. You recognize they also apply to the Gentiles. You you recognize that God is compassionate and gracious and that He intends to bless the Gentiles Gentiles as well. You acknowledge that God intended Abraham's seed to be a blessing to the nations. And you realize that your people have utterly failed. Yet you know that God is faithful and He will fulfill His promises. All these things are welling up in your heart as you begin to grow angry. You ask yourself, how could a good God bless the nations who are persecuting us? You you demand an answer from Him, but you already know what He's about to say. Therefore, you decide to make a run for it. You're not going to stand for this. God says to go to Nineveh. No, you're not going to go to Nineveh. You decide to go to Joppa, and you, you try to find passage to Tarshish in the opposite direction. God told you to arise, so you go down. You continue to go down. You go down to Joppa. When you board the ship, you go down into the belly of the ship. You even lay down to go to sleep. And then you wake in a, a, a sleepy fog only to hear the voice of the captain saying exactly the same words as Yahweh said. Arise. Get up. The word of the Lord had told you to arise. Now you can hear those same words echoing in your ears, this time coming from the pagan captain. Yet you are still ticked. You're still ticked by what God is doing. You ask yourself, how can he do this? How can he do this? How can he ever do this? Truly, you know that God is everywhere. You know that man cannot flee God. David taught you that in, in Psalm 139, that psalm that goes, goes, that's going in your, in your head right now. Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there as well. He knows this. You know this, that is. You recognize that God has sent this incredibly violent storm raging outside. The boat even seems to be crying out for help. The sailors are running around trying to save themselves, but you are unworried. Because you know, you know that Yahweh is doing this. You understand the reason for the wind and the waves. You personally know the one who controls them. The pagans cast lots, but you already know the result. You know. You know that the lot is going to fall on you. You know you're the reason for this storm. You know it. You are God's prophet, after all. The prophet of the Most High. At this point, you, are, you feel so strongly about uh, not wanting to go to Nineveh that you're willing to test him even though it's futility to do so. The sailors have been tossing cargo overboard in order to save the ship, but you know that it's you. You are the reason for the storm. In haste, you tell them to toss you overboard. You know that'll stop the storm. Yet, they hesitate. Why are they waiting? I've, I've told them. This is, this is the reason. You need to toss me overboard, but they're waiting. They've killed people for much less than this. Then you, re- then you realize they don't want to offend your God. In the end, they have no choice. The storm is absolutely brutal. It is supernatural in nature. So down you go. Into the water. The wind and the waves, they begin to overtake you. You find yourself spiraling down towards Sheol. You know that certain death awaits you down there. Your lungs are bursting, but you know it will be over in just a few more seconds. Then it hits you. It hits you like a ton of bricks. What if if your obstinance and your disobedience has resulted in eternal separation? from the God you know, from the God you love. It is at that exact moment that you call out from the depths of Sheol for God to save you. Save me, Lord! Surely, even there, He can hear your voice. You know that to be the truth. All the truths of your youth, the psalms of deliverance and thanksgiving come flooding back into your memory. 
You feel your life ebbing away. You have descended to the depths of Sheol. The earth seems to be swallowing you whole. Then you feel a nudge. What's that? It's at that very moment that you pass out. Now this brings us to Act 2. As you're passing out, you fully recognize that in that moment, you will wake up in the belly of Sheol. Then suddenly you come to. You're startled awake and you gasp out loud, What's that smell? Why is it so dark, so wet, so slimy? Sheol is unlike anything you've ever imagined. Then you realize, this isn't Sheol. You're in the belly of a fish. God heard your call and He has miraculously saved you. So you pray. You pray like you've never prayed before. Your prayer comes from the the depths of your heart. You know that Yahweh has saved you with His mighty hand. He even commanded the fish and it obeyed. At the end of it all, you commit to go to Nineveh. You commit to preach to them. For after all, they they worship idols and they need to hear uh, the truths of one true God. Your prayers make your time in this putrid place more bearable then your then your time in the fish ends as abruptly as it started the fish begins to rumble and literally it it vomits you out onto the land you land with a plop this brings us to act three the fish rudely leaves you on a beach near where you started you wonder why people are gawking at you until you realize that you've been bleached white Some folks are even bowing down and worshiping you. Then the word of the Lord returns. And he tells you to go to Nineveh, that infernal city. You ask yourself, can't he just let it go? You don't like it, but you obey this time. And as you walk, you realize that repentance is the key to triggering God's compassion. So you decide to leave out that repentance part. You simply tell them that Yahweh is about to destroy their stupid city. Then you'll wait and watch him drop the bomb. You chuckle to yourself. Chuckle to yourself as you remember what he did to Sodom and Gomorrah. You smile even out, uh, you smile outwardly even. You say to yourself, it will be a fire, a big, big ball of fire. And they deserve it. When you make it to the city you start and start across, you notice that people are acting differently than you thought. You seem to be interested, they seem to be interested in your message. They're, they're talking, they're murmuring among themselves. They seem to be worried even. You thought that they would just completely ignore you. The further you make it across the city, the more concerned they become. Then you see it. The sackcloth and ashes. Oh no, that's not supposed to happen. They're repenting. How could they know? You haven't said a word about repentance. You can even hear some of them talking. They they were discussing whether whether or not God would relent. It's as if they know Exodus 34 and, and Joel 2. You can't believe it. It was bad enough when the pagan sailors began praying to Yahweh, but now this whole infernal city is praying. Then you begin to feel it again. That anger. It's beginning to well up. Now, as this amazing drama has unfolded, you may be asking yourself, what's the point? We saw in Act 1, God had sent the storm upon the sea and He saved a few sailors by calming the storm. We saw in Act 2 that God commanded the great fish to swallow Jonah and and Jonah praying. We saw in Act 3 that God showed great compassion upon Nineveh, who didn't deserve it, by the way. Today we're going to see, in Act 4, we're going to see a great anger. A great anger. And we're going to see the closing acts a great harvest.
Now, Jonah 4 can be confusing. But I would argue this chapter clearly shows us that God's redemptive plan shows us God's redemptive plan for the Gentiles and it points to the church. So let me read Jonah chapter 4. Starting in verse 1. Follow along if you would. But it greatly displeased Jonah and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was this not what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. And the Lord said, do you have good reason to be angry? Then Jonah went out from the city and sat east of it. There he made a shelter for himself and sat under it in the shade until he could see what would happen in the city. So the Lord appointed a plant and it grew up over Jonah to be shade over his head, to deliver him from his discomfort. And Jonah was extremely happy about the plant. But God appointed a worm when dawn came the next day and it attacked the plant and it withered. When the sun came up, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint and begged with all his soul to die, saying, Death is better to me than life. Then God said to Jonah, Do you have good reason to be angry about the plants? And he said, I have good reason to be angry even to death. Then the Lord said, you had compassion on the plant for which you did not work and which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right hand or the right and left hand, as well as many animals? Now look back at your text this morning as we look at Jonah's angry critique. Back in text in verse 1. It says, But it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. Now as we pick up here in, in Jonah 4, I want you to notice that Jonah is probably still in the city when he becomes angry. That's where we left off in the story. That anger was beginning uh, to, to well up in, in Jonah as he saw uh, the pagans discussing repentance and, and whether or not God would relent from destroying them. Again, put yourself in his shoes. Put yourself in his shoes as he began to recognize what God was doing. Uh, your vision starts to blur. Uh, you can't think straight. You're, you're about to blow your top. You're angry. Uh, you've known it the whole time. The whole time you knew what God was planning to do. You knew that God was planning to save the Gentiles no matter how many ways you tried to stop it. You realize God's sovereign plan always included the nations. You recognize it, but you don't like it. You see, the nations have always hated Israel. They've even hated Yahweh, Israel's God. How could He save them? How could He show compassion on them? You ask yourself, again in Jonah's shoes, you ask yourself through the blinding anger, how could He do this? How could He show compassion? You're so angry that you can hardly walk in a straight line as you continue to cry out your message. Oh, by the way, it's your message, which is not fully what God had said. Then you start to pray. But this time you decide to give Yahweh a piece of your mind. He has really done it now. That's where we pick up in verse 2. Jonah prayed. Please, Lord, was this not what I said while I was in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish. Now, we've said all along that Jonah knew what Yahweh would do. Here it is in his own words. He wanted God to destroy the Ninevites. 
He wanted Sodom and Gomorrah to look tame. He certainly didn't want uh, God to save them. So Jonah was willing to flee to Tarshish, but he was also willing to face certain death by being cast into the sea. Truly. We should clearly see that Jonah hated the fact that God was showing mercy toward the the Ninevites. Look back at verse 2. For I knew that you were compassionate, or gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Notice that Jonah's quote very closely matches Joel in Joel 2, the quote in Joel 2, uh, where Joel says much the same thing. I would argue that Joel that Jonah is quoting Joel 2, who's quoting Moses. Now, if that's true. That means that that Jonah understands that God intends to give the Gentiles not only saving them, but he intends that, that the Gentiles would receive blessing from Yahweh. And, and it angers him. You see, Jonah wants God, Yahweh, to, to pour out his wrath upon them. He cannot stand the fact that God would relent of calamity. He certainly can't stand for Yahweh to pour out His blessings upon pagan nations. Look back at your text in verse 3. I mean, this is how badly He didn't want this to happen. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. And Jonah 1, we just talked about it. In Jonah 1, Jonah tried to have himself killed by telling the sailors to throw him overboard. He was so upset that he knew at what God was about to do that he was effectively willing to commit suicide. Self-murder. But we know that didn't work, right? God saved him by sending the fish. At this point in the story, God knows that his death won't stop God's plan. So he requests for God to take his life. He doesn't want to live to see how all this is going to turn out. He can't stand the thought of God saving the Gentiles. He certainly can't stand, he'll certainly never stand for God blessing the Gentiles. This is true, especially considering that in a few short years, Israel would be taken captive by the Assyrians. The thought of what God was doing truly angered Jonah, leading to this angry critique. Now let's look at Yahweh's amazing counter. Yahweh's amazing counter. Look at verse 4. Where Yahweh responds with a simple question. Look at your text. Do you, this is the Lord speaking to Jonah, do you have good reason to be angry? You see, we, we've seen here that, that Jonah has reasons for his anger. There, I mean, there are clear reasons for his anger. But he didn't have any good reason for his anger. Ultimately, he didn't think that the Gentiles deserved God's compassion. I mean, that's really what it boils down to. He believed that they deserved God's wrath. But he's forgetting that God's actions toward the Gentiles do not affect him or Israel in any way. I mean, you could actually argue it would be positive, if anything. What we have to remember is is that it's not as if God's blessings are limited. It's not as if He has to divide them. There there is no division here. In other words, in God's hands are blessings unnumbered. You see, Jonah would have known the truth of Psalm 145 written by David. Psalm 145, 16 says, You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. Jonah would have also known the truth of Psalm 1611. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. They are unending pleasures. But instead of wanting to see the blessing of God shared among many children, he wanted to limit them to just one nation. God's chosen nation, Israel. 
Not only that, but he wanted God to pour out his wrath on the Ninevites. Truth be known, he wanted God's judgment upon all the nations. He loved Obadiah. He loved it. Look at verse 5. Then Jonah went out from the city and sat east of it. There he made a shelter for himself and sat under it in the shade until he could see what would happen in the city. So, so Jonah ex- <clears throat> exits the city. He's gone all the way across. He exits the city and he sits to the east of the city, probably the main city outside the city walls. The word translated east could also be translated against. So he probably directionally sat east of it, but if metaphorically he was, was sitting against the city. It's the same word used in Genesis 16:12, where it says uh, that he will be uh, against everyone. His hand will be against, everyone's hand will be against him. The, the idea is against, but again, it could be directionally. So I think he probably uh, sat east of the city. Most likely, he, he entered from the west and walked through the middle to the east side. Then he exited the city and sat down facing west back toward the city. And there he made a makeshift shelter so that he would have a front row seat to what God would do to the Ninevites. It wasn't much, the shelter that is, and, and it certainly wouldn't stand uh, against the elements, but it was something. Look at verse 6. So the Lord God appointed a plant, and it grew up over Jonah to be shade over his head to deliver him from his discomfort. So the Lord God, the idea there is he's as, as creator, God as creator, Points back to Genesis chapter 1, chapter 2. Now, this should remind you of another appointment. Remember, God appointed the great fish in Jonah 1.17. Now, I'm pretty sure Jonah was pretty happy about that fish coming along. Uh, now, now God appoints this plant, and the text says that he was extremely happy about the plant. Truly, Jonah was rapturously happy about the plant. I mean, he was, I'm talking about full of joy that this plant had come along. God had placed this plant there. Sadly, his great happiness is in direct conflict with his great anger that he had shown because of God's compassionate compassion toward the Ninevites. You see, <clears throat> all in all, God had been good to Jonah, had he not? Now, he had saved his life with the fish. Now he has given him shade for the, uh, given him plant the plant for shade. I mean, God has been good. But here's a pertinent question: Did Jonah deserve God's goodness? Had he done anything to deserve what God had done for him? If we're honest, if we're looking at the text, obviously the answer is no. I mean, he's been disobedient. He's been obstinate. He's done exactly the opposite of what God said to do. But that doesn't stop Jonah from basking in the goodness of God's blessings. No doubt he saw the growth of the great plant as God's blessing upon him. Now, ultimately, both the fish and the plant are God's, get this, unmerited favor toward Jonah. He didn't deserve either, yet God gave him both. I think that's important for us to remember as we, as we look at this text. Now look at verse 7. But God appointed a worm. When dawn came the next day, he, it attacked the plant and it withered. It didn't stop there. When the sun came up, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint and begged with all his soul to die, saying, Death is better to me than life. This man loves death, doesn't he? In these verses, God does two things that negatively impact Jonah. He appoints a worm to kill the plant, and he appoints a scorching east wind. He, God brought destruction upon the plant, a plant that was very near to Jonah. He, he loved it, he, it, and it angered him. But God withheld destruction from Nineveh, which also angered Jonah. Then, then God brought a scorching east wind. 
most commentators identify this east wind as a Sirocco. Uh, During these winds, the temperature rises dramatically and the humidity drops quickly. These winds are a a straight line uh, type of wind, unlike the swirling winds that we experience in Florida. Uh, These winds carry dust through the air, great amounts of dust. They can even approach hurricane force in, in nature. When Angie and I and the family lived in Nevada, similar winds would blow off the Sierras into the high desert, and, and they would blow through, <clears throat> sometimes they would blow for three or four days in a row, leaving dust everywhere in the home. You could look at the windowsills and see dust, you could just wipe up the dust. According to one commentator, the Sirocco winds contain constant hot air so full of positive ions that it affects the levels of serotonin and other brain neurotransmitters causing exhaustion, depression, feelings of unreality, and occasionally bizarre behavior. The Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, translates it succinctly as a scorcher. End quote. Even though the wind is a natural phenomenon, the text says that God appointed it. On the balance, see, God has appointed two good things, the fish and the plant. And he's appointed two negative things, the worm and the wind. Uh, Jonah believes he deserves the good things, but he doesn't deserve the bad. In other words, he believes that he is deserving of God's blessing and compassion, but that leaves him inconsistent. He's inconsistent. He's truly, his, truly, Jonah's inconsistency is astounding. He even comes to the point of saying, death is better to me than life. Look back at verse 9. Then, Jonas, then God said to Jonah, Do you have good reason to be angry, good reason to be angry about the plant? And he said, and jo- Jonah said, I have good reason to be angry even to death. It's astounding, astounding reaction. You see, Jonah doesn't want to admit the inconsistency of his anger. He's angry that God destroyed a plant and sent a scorching wind, but he's okay with God destroying an entire city. Not only okay, but he's cheering it along. He had a, a, a sideline seat to, to watch this, this infernal city go up in smoke. Sending, by the way, thousands of souls to eternal damnation. He truly believed that Israel deserved God's blessing while Nineveh deserved God's wrath and nothing else. It's possible that Jonah was so blinded by his prayer, or his by his prayer, by his pride, that he couldn't see the inconsistency of his reasoning. But see, God doesn't leave it that way. God clearly shows him his blind spot. Does he not do that to us? I mean, we all have blind spots. Jonah's was glaring, but we all have them. And our prayer would be that that God would show us our blind spots, and that's exactly what God does here. Look at verses 10 and 11. Then the Lord said, You had compassion on the plant for which you did not work, which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. It's a stupid plant. And it's not stupid, but you know what I'm saying. He had, then he asked this question. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh? the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and left hand, as well as many animals? You see, Jonah loved the plant, but he didn't love the lost Gentiles. So God gives him one argument that trumps them all. Verse 11 says that the city, the great city, had more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and left hand, as well as many animals. By the way, I think the math is, if that's, if you consider those five, five, five and under, children five and under, that there's about probably 600,000 people in this city. In other words, 120,000 per persons are young children and people who cannot, do not have the faculty to understand. I would argue here we see God's full compassion on display. 
I believe this shows, I would argue that this shows God's mercy toward children because He loves them. Therefore, I believe this passage, I would argue this passage, I would say this passage is, teaches that God saves all children who die before they can discern right from wrong. There's other passages that I would use as well for this. But here in this passage, God uses children as a demonstration of His compassion. That God shows compassion. That He is full of compassion. He shows that compassion on these wicked Ninevites who repented of their sin. Now, that's it. The story doesn't give us Jonah's reply. As a matter of fact, this is a major cliffhanger. The story just ends. We're not given any idea how... What is the ending? We don't know. Does God leave Jonah to wander around the nations for the rest of his days? Does he continue to use him as a prophet? Does Jonah go back to Israel? We just don't know. At this point, though, I should remind you that Jonah embodies Israel. With Jonah, we're left to piece together his life, how his life may have continued. With Israel, it's the same. We leave Jonah angry and pouting because God saved the Gentiles and withheld blessing from him. I would argue this points to an even greater reality. Today, Israel is angry and pouting that God would include the Gentiles in his promises and blessings. Therefore, they've refused, they have refused to cooperate in his plan of redemption. But just like Jonah, that isn't all the story. Because even though they're in that position, God still is using them. Instead of being a light to the nations, they've been scattered to the nations. And in their obstinance and disobedience, God has still used them and is still using them for His glory. And I would argue that He will use them in the future. This brings us to the closing acts. A great harvest. Jonah's sign. I've been teasing this all the way through the series. Turn back to Matthew chapter 12, verse 38, 41. This is powerful. I'll just read through again. Starting in verse 38, Matthew 12, 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Now you may recall last week that Jonah became a miraculous sign to the Ninevites. Jonah's God, Yahweh, commanded the great fish to carry Jonah and vomit him on dry land. Jonah's God controlled the great fish. Therefore, Undoubtedly, they, they came to believe Yahweh was much greater and much pow, more powerful than their fish god. So, when Jonah went walking around the city, or walking through the city, he had great authority because of what had happened. Now, some folks argue that the sign of Jonah is the resurrection of Jesus that Jonah was resurrected from the fish. But I would argue that the sign of Jonah was Jonah himself as he walked through the city. This miraculous sign that he, that, that Yahweh had command, had power over the fish. Therefore, he was greater than the fish god of the Ninevites. <clears throat> he was saved from death by the fish 
And Jonah spent three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster. In like manner. Now get this. In like manner, Jesus, the Messiah, would become a miraculous sign that he himself, he himself would become a miraculous sign that he has the power over death itself. That's the sign of Jonah. Jesus would spend three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Then he would present himself alive as a powerful sign that he had been raised from the dead. Let me prove this to you. Let's look at Acts chapter 2. Peter Stan. Now believe me, we could spend several sermons studying Acts chapter 2. But for our purposes today, I, would, I want to just point out a couple of things here. Acts chapter 2 records the events of Pentecost, which is the feast of the harvest or first fruits. Acts 2 through 1-4 describes the sending of the Holy Spirit who came on this day as the first fruits of our inheritance. And on that day, many souls came to know Christ they were the first fruits, the, the first fruits of the church, the first fruit of a great harvest to come, and that's important for us to understand. Now, I want you to look at Acts 2 5, verse 5. Now, there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. Now, from Acts 2 9 through 11. Luke emphasizes the presence of Jews who were among the nations. These men were hearing in their own tongues the mighty the tongue speaking of the mighty deeds of God. That's in verse 11. Now, again, there's much I could say here, but I want you to see the emphasis on the nations, the Gentile nations. In Acts 2.14, Peter takes a stand to preach the churches, what I would call the church's inaugural sermon. He starts by quoting Joel chapter 2. Now, I don't have time to unpack this, but I would tell you, just, I'll just carefully say this, he's using Joel 2 to show that Pentecost is the start of the latter days. The latter days, which I would argue is the church's age, will culminate in the day of the Lord. Now, I wish I could unpack all that, but that's what's going on here. It's, he's not saying that all, everything in Joel that, that he's quoting, he's not saying everything was fulfilled at the Pentecost. He's saying that that's the beginning of the fulfillment. Does that make sense? Now, you may recall, and this is why we went through it, that Joel 2 speaks of God bringing judgment during the day of the Lord. Ultimately, during the day of the Lord, He will bless Israel when they repent. Now, after quoting Joel, let's pick up with Peter in verse 22. Verse 22, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. Well, why do they know, Peter? Why do they know this? This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. So God planned this ahead of time. You nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and you put him to death. And put him to death. Put succinctly, Jesus was nailed to the cross because the leaders of Jerusalem rejected him as their Messiah and they insisted that the Romans crucify him. But all of this was according to the, to the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Now look at verse 24. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in his power. In verse 24, Peter declares the truth of the resurrection. We have resurrection day coming up, where we're, we're again going to declare the truth of the resurrection, that God raised Jesus from the dead because it was impossible for Jesus to be held in his power. In other words, and get this, Yahweh is greater than death, just like Yahweh was greater than the Ninevite fish god. Does that make sense? 
Now look down at verse 32. This Jesus God raised up again to which we are all witnesses. What are they witnesses? Did they see God, uh, Christ being raised from the dead? No. They saw his body. Right? He appeared to many. In other words, Jesus walked around and, and appeared to many who witnessed that he was in fact alive and well and in his glorified body. As such, Jesus became a sign to the men of Jerusalem. That's who Peter's speaking to. Peter, Jesus became a sign to the men of Jerusalem that he, in fact, had been risen from the dead, just like Jonah was a sign to the men of Nineveh. Now look down at verse 36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. The resurrection, the fact that Jesus was alive and well and walking around, proved that he is, in fact, Lord and their Messiah. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Beloved church, friends, Peter's answer in Acts 2.38 points back to Matthew 12 and Jonah 3. Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Acts 2.39 then shows that God intended to bless Jews and Gentiles through the Messiah. Look at 2.39. For the promise, what promise? The promise of salvation. The promise of blessing. The promise is for you and your children. Well, who are you and your children? Uh, the promise of salvation then is for the Jews. And, and this is important, for all who are far off. Who are all who are far off? You and I. The Gentiles. Then he says, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. What's another way to say that? You, you may recall in Jonah's prayer where Jonah said, salvation is from the Lord. You see, Simon bar Jonah is reasserting the truth of Jonah's prayer. This brings us to Yahweh's schema. We don't have time to look in depth, but in Acts chapter 9 and 10, you will find the start of the fulfillment of Acts 2.39. When Peter, Simon bar Jonah is sent by Yahweh to, anybody know where? Joppa. Where did, where did uh, Jonah go? Joppa. Simon bar Jonah goes to Joppa and to the Gentiles. See the connection? I've been telling you it's the church. It points to the church. That's the, that's the rest of the story. Well, it's not fully the rest of the story because we're going to get to see in the future what God does with Israel as well. It's amazing. It's amazing. This begins a harvest that includes a multitude of believers from every nation. From every nation. As I've said previously and I've said it over and over, Jonah 4 points to the church. It points to the reality that God will have men and women from every nation around His throne worshiping Him. Revelation 5, 9-10 through 10 says, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased uh, for God with blood men from every tribe, tongue, and people, and nation. Here's an amazing thing. You have made them to be a kingdom 
and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. You see, the salvation of Nineveh points to an even greater reality of a great harvest among the Gentiles. By the way, if you haven't missed it, most of us in this room are Gentiles. And we've had a couple of people from Jewish descent in this church over over the history of it, but most of us are Gentiles. You see, we owe our salvation to the fact that God showed mercy toward us just like He did with the Ninevites. Here's the amazing part. Not only has God relented from destroying us, if you are in Christ, He has poured out His blessings on us. So listen to Paul in Ephesians 2, 11-16. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in this world. That was you and I. But now Christ Jesus, in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace who made both into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in His flesh the enmity which is the law of commandments contained in the ordinances so that in Himself He might make the two into one man thus establishing peace. And might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross. By it having been put, having put to death the enmity. There's a lot there if you want to know what's going on in that, those verses. Specifically, you can go back and listen to my Ephesians series. But ultimately, in the church, he has torn down that dividing wall. We have been made into new, one new man. And in the future, that will come to full fruition. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, you owe your salvation fully to Him. You owe it to what He has accomplished on your behalf. Listen to Paul in Ephesians 2, 17-22. And He came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. For through Him we both have our access in one Spirit to the Father. So then you, that would be the Gentiles, that would be us, are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. The church, which is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Himself being the cornerstone. Beloved, this has been God's plan from the beginning. Jews and Gentiles, the nations dwelling together as one. And this is the mystery of the church. But we ought to be careful. We ought to be careful. As the church, we must not make Jonah's mistake and think that God doesn't have a future for His chosen people. They have been set aside just like Jonah. Has. They are angry and they have been scattered among the nations. But just like Jonah, I would argue this is not the end of their story. It's not the end. It's not the end. And guess what? God will get all the glory. God will get all the glory. We will gather around the throne and we will worship Him All the nations will worship Him. And I would argue that Israel will become what they were intended to become, a light to the nations. Well, if the Holy Spirit has laid anything on your heart in the preaching of this sermon, I would ask that you would, anything you want to discuss, I would ask that you contact one of the leaders or speak to a mature Christian to answer your question. 
and you can get a hold of me anytime during the week. I'd love to talk to you. Let me pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning. We praise you for the goodness of your plan. Your plan of redemption that you formulated from before the foundation of the world. That we would be received all the blessings. For in your hand are pleasures forever. An amazing thought that we as Christians, as Gentile Christians, receive the blessings of God. Your, your blessings, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.